Well, good evening. Uh, my name is Ben Milner. I'm one of the pastors here, and especially thankful for those of you who came out in spite of the Tar Heel game. Um, they're down by seven, by the way. No, I, I don't know what the score is, but that, that freaked out a few people. Um, it's, a good, it's a good night to have come. Um, somewhere in the past, I uh, heard a theologian remark that John 17 is the greatest chapter of the Bible. And I'll just let that kind of sink in. That's not a statement that a great theologian makes lightly. I think it was maybe John Calvin. I, I'm pretty sure he also said that it is the holy of holies of the New Testament. So this is a significant passage. And I told all this to, uh, to my wife Margie this week, and it kind of, kind of bothered her because, um, and, and it bothered me a little bit too to hear that, because you know when I read this, uh, it's definitely not the easiest thing to read. Um, it's not abundantly clear what is going on here. Um, it almost sounds kind of repetitive, a little bit maybe robotic or awkward. Um, you know, he's, it, he sounds like uh, some theologian just writing a treatise, something that I might have read in seminary. As you hear, you know, what Laura was saying, I don't know if, if uh, you had that reaction to it, but... It's very important to know this is not a theological paper that Jesus has, has written here. And uh, this is, in fact, a prayer. And I think we, should, we have to read it like a prayer, or else uh, it doesn't make any sense. And that, you see that right there in verse 1. He lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father. Now, I don't know if the disciples were there. I don't know where they are. They could be in an upper room. I saw a movie uh, about the Gospel of John, and he's kind of walking around, leading the disciples down to the Garden of Gethsemane while he's saying this. But I do think we have to believe that the early disciples who were there, they heard this. He was praying out loud. They uh, collectively reconstructed what he said. Um, He was clearly, uh, his eyes are lifted to heaven in the Jewish posture of prayer. His arms, his hands are probably open like this, his arms outstretched. This is a conversation between uh, the Father and the Son. This is the Son of God talking to the Father. We don't hear what the Father's saying back, but this is, again, this is the inner life of the Trinity. This is um, a sneak peek into what God is like in himself, which you don't get much of, um, what theologians sometimes call the ontological Trinity. This is essentially eternal life momentarily unveiled. To the world. Verse 3 actually defines eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So it's, um, it's not like eternal life is going to heaven. Some people think that eternal life simply means that after you die, you continue to live. But that is not what eternal life means. It's not so much a quantity thing as it is a quality thing. Eternal life is this mutual divine knowing. It's clearly about knowing. This is eternal life to know you, but it's not just knowing you. God is knowing you and the Son. It's knowing more than one person at a time, which is a necessity about knowledge. If there's personal knowledge, there has to be two knowing each other. And this is uh, the Father and the Son with this ongoing, overflowing personal knowledge of one another that they want to share with the world. Uh, John 3.16 is a very well-known verse. Um, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believe in him may have eternal life and never perish. And a lot of people think that that means that that if you believe in Jesus, you don't go to hell. 
But if you think about what this is saying in John 17, 3, eternal life is to know God personally. To know not only God as a, as a single entity, but the Father and the Son. That's eternal life. It's kind of like you enter into a conversation that they're already having. And you become part of that conversation. It's a personal relationship with a three-person God. My friend Mark Brown, who is a, a very wise pastor, um, he once told me the loop, the loop pizza grill of all places. He told me, prayer is not part of our relationship with God. It is our relationship with God. And that, that never left me. And it helped me to pray more uh, that week just thinking about that comment. That, that prayer is not just a part of our relationship with God. Prayer is our relationship with God. It is that ongoing conversation. Sometimes even in a way we don't know, uh, pr- prayer uh, is continuous, says Paul. Pray without ceasing. There's, a, there's an element of prayer that you're not even necessarily aware of when you're praying. But um, prayer is not a part of our relationship with God. It is our relationship with God. And John 17 is the definitive prayer. This is the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is not so much our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's the disciples' prayer. This is the Lord praying. This is the Lord's Prayer. There's no other place in the Bible where you have this long a prayer Um, that Jesus actually prayed to his Father. And so I want to look at that. I want to look at prayer. But before we look at prayer, we have to look at this other thing that he talks about throughout this passage, which he calls uh, the world. And it's one of those parts of the passage that makes it hard to understand. What does he mean by the world? Is he talking about a planet? Is he talking about something spiritual? Um, We need to look at the world, what that means. So I want to start with looking at the world because that is the threat to prayer is the world. And then I want to look at um, prayer, which is to overcome the world. So the world, first of all, the world, point one, the world is uh, the Greek word cosmos, obviously, where we get uh, our word cosmos or cosmological cosmology. Um, It is used 13 times in this short passage. 13 times the word cosmos is used. Obviously, that's a major part of this passage, which is why I made it half of my sermon and uh, it is never used positively. It's almost never used positively in the whole New Testament, especially in the Gospel of John. God so loved the world doesn't mean that God so loved this planet. It means that God so loved uh, this group of people that are in opposition to him, that are opposed to him. God so loved that world. Um, Jesus said, I am not of the world, in verse 14. In other words, I am the exact opposite of the world. I define myself against the world. Uh, Jesus contra mundum. I am not of this world. And uh, cosmos is not referring to a planet, like I said earlier. It's referring to um, something spiritual. And and C.S. Lewis, if you ever read the Space Trilogy, I love the Space Trilogy. Out of the Silent Planet is the first one. Uh, also an album by a great band named King's X, Out of the Silent Planet. And the, um, <clears throat> the silent planet, he calls uh, this planet, he goes out into outer space, meets some creatures on Mars, and they say, oh, you're from the silent planet. And you wonder what the silent planet is throughout the book. Well, the silent planet is the planet Earth because on this planet alone, the communication with the divine is very staticky. It's like a radio that goes in and out of service where the signal is really breaky. And um, that's what the silent planet is. It's a planet where communication with God is very, very hard to hear. Where eternal life is rare. 
Again, think what eternal life is. It's a knowledge of God. Eternal life is rare on the silent planet. Because on the silent planet, uh, we are ruled by uh, the evil one. Verse 15. Keep them from the evil one. You know, he doesn't say exactly what that is. Um, Other places in the New Testament, you read that and and he's called the devil. He's called the accuser. He's called the Satan. Um, This is the evil one. I think big brother is a great way to think of of Satan, especially in this context of the world. So if you've read 1984 by George Orwell, um, you know about Big Brother. There's that ominous uh, statement that you see posted all over the place. Um, Big Brother is watching you. And I think that's what the world is like. That's what the evil one is like. It's like constant mass surveillance and thought control. That's what the world is. And the world is always on the lookout for anyone who is communicating with God. And the, the world wants to silent, to silence that, hence the silent planet. The world has hated them, verse 14, because they are not of the world. The world has hated them because they are threatening the silence that the world wants this planet to be under. That the evil one, Big Brother, does not want people communicating with God. In Revelation uh, chapter 13, the world is personified in, uh, in only a way that the book of Revelation could ever do, uh, which is a, a prostitute riding on a grotesque beast called the beast. And so the beast uh, is described by the author of Revelation as seven-headed and ten-horned. So try to picture, like a, I think a hydra had seven heads, uh, like a seven-headed dragon and there, I think there are ten horns maybe on each head. That's what the beast is. And then, not only that, but the beast is covered with blasphemous names. Now, this is not to be taken literally, but it's, it's, it's John's way of saying uh, this is what the world is like. And the names are blasphemous because, because the beast is kind of flooding the airways with his own glory. It's idolatrous. It's blasphemous. He's pretending to be the ultimate, the beast is, to the world. That's, that's the beast. It's kind of like North Korea. In North Korea, every single home... I saw a documentary on this. It was really it was chilling. Every home in North Korea, they, they install the speaker. And there's constant government propaganda coming through your house. And you can't turn it down, but so low. So you're always hearing the blasphemous name of, uh, of the beast coming through the airwaves. That's, that's, the, that's the beast. Now, the prostitute riding on the beast... It's kind of the second part of the plan. Um, The prostitute is described as committing adultery with all the rulers of the earth. She intoxicates all the people of the earth with the wine of her adultery. So basically she is keeping us in love with everything down here. Intoxicating us with love. Love of everything down here so we don't look up there and communicate. Again, keeping the planet silent. I, uh, I, I, read a, I was reading a book last night called Protestants, The Faith That Made the Modern World. Really good book by Alec Ryrie, Protestants. And I came across this paragraph. I just thought, I've got to include this in the sermon. In 1990, uh, a Nigerian Pentecostal pastor published a call to prayer for Nigeria, summoning his readers to join him in the battle of translating the victory of Jesus over the devil into the everyday natural realities of our personal lives and also of our political, religious, economic, and social systems. Quote, Prayer, militant, strategic, and aggressive, must be our weapon of warfare 
at this time. Since that time, national groups like Prayer for the Nation, Intercessors for Nigeria, and Nigeria Praise have emerged. According to Intercessor for Nigeria's founder, quote, when you pray prophetically, you are in a place of governmental authority. It can change laws. It can cancel what politicians have said. Nigeria Praise even said that they averted a civil war by praying. Now, I mention all that to you. It's kind of wild stuff how prayer, prayer is not just an individual act. It's a subversive part of a resistance movement against the world. It's part of overcoming um, the world's attempt to silence God. And if you've ever had a hard time praying, maybe that helps explain why. Because you're not just, it's not just a battle that you're having with your, your own soul or your own psyche. The battle you're having is against forces that don't want you to be praying. They do not want you communicating with God. And so the, the question you have to ask yourself is, um, have you really joined this prayer movement as described in Nigeria in that serious a way? Because I, I believe a lot of people who are, who are believers have yet to really see prayer at that level of, uh, of something that is God, part of God's strategy for bringing his kingdom on planet Earth and undermining the world. Because I think uh, a, a good question to ask yourself is, am I a threat to the world? Or is the world kind of like, uh, no big deal with Ben, you know, we, we got him. Am I really someone that the world hates and targets? Because if you mess, the, if you mess with the world, the world is going to push back on you. And you're going to feel that, that voice saying, don't go there. Don't do that. Don't pray. And I, I find this especially to be true when I'm, I'm trying to pray with other people or uh, go to group, with a group of people to pray. I find a strong resistance to that that I... I do not think is simply psychological. I think it's bigger than that. Uh, the world is uh, committed to silencing God to such an extent that Jesus says, I won't even pray for the world. Not worth praying for. Too opposed to the Father. Verse 9, I am not praying for the world. Now that, that, that silencing is only part A of the two-part plan that the world has to... Uh, basically defame the character of God, to malign the name of God. So, uh, first of all, it's like, let's cut off all communication lines with God. And then, having done that, let's drag his name through the mud and make trashes, trash his character, and make everybody think that uh, he's this terrible uh, being that hates everyone, or is repressive, or is trying to keep everybody down. There's actually a phenomenon that psychologists have been especially attentive to over the last 40 years as uh, divorce rates skyrocket. It's called parental alienation. And uh, especially Dr. Richard Gardner and Richard Warshak have written on this idea of parental alienation. It's a really important thing um, in the, the culture that where divorce happens a lot. And here's what it is. It's when one parent tries to poison the mind of their child against their ex-spouse generating fear, suspicion, and hostility. That's just a short encapsulation of what parental alienation is. But the reason I mention it is because clearly this is what the world wants to do with God, is to um, generate fear, suspicion, and hostility against God. And I would say one of their victims is Christopher Hitchens, sadly. So I mentioned last week, 
Uh, he called God a cosmic dictator in a celestial North Korea. So he obviously had this strong parental alienation from God his father. And in his book, God is not great. God is not great. He wrote, the Bible contains warrant for human trafficking. It contains warrant for ethnic cleansing and slavery and indiscriminate massacre. It was put together by crude human mammals and comes from the bawling, fearful infancy of our species. The bawling, B-A-W-L-I-N-G, fearful infancy of our species. Now that's really extreme, but I think if you're honest, you felt some resonance with that. Um, I know I do. I, I, I hear Hitchens say that, and I'm like, you know, at least he's honest. I mean, I have similar thoughts towards God, towards the Bible. And Dr. Julie Exlein, who is um, a psychologist at Case Western, social psychologist, she did a study, actually, where she found that atheists and agnostics, you know, self-identified atheists and agnostics, they actually, strange enough, they reported anger at God. And she would have studies, she would bring in people, ask them all these questions, ask them how they identified spiritually, And uh, she said they had anger at a hypothetical image of what God is like. And she called it emotional atheism. And I think there's a lot of emotional atheists, even among Christians, even among people people who say they believe in God, where uh, there's that anger at that image of what we think God is like. And uh, a, a famous German New Testament scholar, Rudolf Bultmann, described the world as the determination to live for ourselves the delusion that arises from the commitment to exist by oneself. I think that begins to happen as you distance yourself from God. You begin to enclose yourself in yourself. Um, David Foster Wallace made his famous speech at Kenyon College, commencement address, where he says, among other things, there is no experience that you have ever had where you are not at the absolute center of it. Sounds like a tautology, like, duh, it's obvious. But if you really think about that, that's, that's a... That's a frightening thing. You've never had a single experience in your whole life where you are not at the absolute center of it. And everything else was just like an appendage to you. Somebody mentioned that at the prayer meeting this week. They were praying and they said, Lord, forgive me because everyone around me feels like an appendage to me. And I am at the dead center of everything. And we almost think, well, how could it be otherwise? But that's the whole problem. Is that we think that's the only way it could possibly be. That so much of our lives were just trapped in our brain. You know? And then we complain we're lonely. Well, obviously, because we have decided to live in our brain. And that's what the world wants to do. That's the first point. Is that the world is determined to keep you outside of eternal life. Outside of this mutual knowing. What, uh, what might be called the dance of the Trinity. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, the word is perichoresis was used by the ancient Greek fathers, patristics, uh, as an image for the dance between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And a lot of ways, we're like a wallflower at a party who was too scared to join in that dance. But that's what we're being invited into in the high priestly prayer here in John 17. So this is a situation that could change at any moment in your life. Because the invitation is always there to come and join the fellowship of the Trinity. Come join the dance. Come enter into our life of mutual knowing. And that's point two, is this invitation that Jesus gives us here to pray. This is, again, this, this is eternal life. 
Uh, prayer is not a part of your relationship with God. It is, it is what your relationship with God is. is your communication with Him. <clears throat> and I would say that in many ways, it's, uh, it's like learning to talk to a dad uh, that you haven't seen for years. And maybe there is some alienation there. And so Jesus has to begin the prayer by saying, Father. And, you know, he taught his disciples the Lord's Prayer or the disciples' prayer, uh, Our Father. You've got to start by saying, Our Father. Because you've never really understood how much he is your Father. And so, verse 1, he lifted his eyes to the heaven and said, Father. He's undoing the lies of the world that God is not a good Father. Because when you actually uh, start talking to God, you realize that he is not the uh, cosmic dictator in celestial North Korea that, that you often think he is. That's not who he is. Um, and if you break through into that realization about God, it, it kind of releases this joy. Um, that would happen if a child were reconciled to the child's father. It, there's this joy ready to come out. There's this pressure that builds, and we want to think of God that way, don't we? And so he says in verse 13, I am speaking into the world. Uh, I am telling the world these things so that, that they may have joy fulfilled, or I would say released, joy released inside of themselves. Joy, joy because they, they finally are entering into communication with God, and the alienation is being broken, and so joy can happen. If you notice this prayer, um, it kind of bothered me. It bothered some commentaries I read, too. Sometimes it seems like Jesus is just talking. I mean, how much of this prayer does it seem like he's not even talking to God? He's just saying things. That's why, again, that's why um, it almost feels like a theological treatise or a paper. And it's a little bit disturbing. And some people have even said, uh, some commentaries say, he's, this is not a prayer. This is just the disciples wrote, wrote down a bunch of stuff that he said, and they made it look like he was praying. Because there's so many statements that are just Jesus just talking. You know, he's just making statements. So, for instance, uh, Father, the hour has come. Uh, Father, eternal life is knowing us. Uh, verse 1 is the hours. He's just telling his Father the hour has come. And then in verse 3, he's, he's almost giving a, a definition of a word. It, it's a strange thing to say to your Father. Father, eternal life is knowing you. So I was thinking, this is really strange. This doesn't sound like a prayer. But then I thought... But as a father, you know, what do I love for my children? I love, I love for them just to come and start telling me things. Just start talking in my presence. That's actually a very important part of a relationship. Is you just sit there and say things in the other person's presence. Like, Dad, it's, there's two hours to go till game time. You know, that's, that's a beautiful thing to hear a child say. Or, Dad, I love our relationship. Now, I don't hear that as much. You know, that's a stretch. That's maybe 25, 26 years old, but... Jesus just says these things. Father, I finished what you told me to do. Verse 4. And I can imagine the, the pride of the son. <clears throat> Father, I've done what you told me to do. Verse 6. I've told them all about your name. Again, these are just statements. Not really. They're not petitions. They're not thanksgiving. Verse 7. Now they know that all I have is from you. And again, this is not... The the type of thing we associate with prayer, is it? Um, Anne Lamott is a great, great Christian writer. Um, she says uh, that the two great prayers are help me, help me, help me, and thank you, thank you, thank you. And I, I, I do agree with that to some extent, but I would have to say that, that this, um, this prayer makes it sound like there might be more to prayer than just help me and thank you. 
There's this other way of just simply talking. You're just talking in the presence of God. One of the very first books I bought on prayer was by a Catholic theologian named Peter Kreeft, K-R-E-E-F-T. I recommend anything he's written, Peter Kreeft. And the title was The Great Conversation. Prayer, colon, The Great Conversation. And just the title alone made me want to buy it. Prayer, The Great Conversation. Because I think one part of prayer is, God, I think I just aced that exam. That's prayer. God, I, just, I think I just aced that exam. You're just talking to God, and you're just telling him things. God, I am so upset about what is going on with my child or my marriage. Um, Lord, I see that person, and I, I know they're lonely, uh, or I know that they're poor, or they need help. But I don't want to do it. You know, even that, that's a prayer. I don't want to do it. Just telling God everything. He loves that. Uh, Jesus, I'm dreading this meeting. Father, I can't believe Virginia just lost that game. I, that, I was at the game. Oh, that's mean. <laughs> there are Virginia fans in the room. But I was, uh, I was at that game, and uh, I, was, I, was, I can't believe this is happening. I cannot believe this is happening. Um, that's prayer. That is not uh, like second class or tainted with the world or anything like that. That's part of what it means to be in relationship with God. You know, our psyche was never made to be alone. It was never made to exist autonomously or apart from the Trinity. Not just some deistic God, some, the God of theism. Uh, that's worthless. The God of the philosophers is worthless. That's what Pascal said. Um, we're talking about the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're talking about the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's God, the one who talks to you. The one without whom you are um, inconsolable. Again, there's no experience you've ever had that you're not the absolute center of. That is a tragedy. Because, because God is supposed to be at the center of everything. And this is what Jesus is praying against. That very thing. Father, keep them in your name. That means tell them how good you are. Reveal to them how great you are. Your name is character. The name of God is always character. I have guarded them, verse 12. I have protected them from, from living in alienation from you. Verse 12 again, not one of them is lost except the son of destruction. Lost is being drowned in a a sea of treacherous thoughts like Judas was. That's what happened to Judas, the son of destruction. He was destroyed because he lost that connection with the Father. If you notice the structure of Jesus' psyche here, uh, it's very much intertwined with his Father's. Verse 6, yours they were and you gave them to me. So these people, this community of people he's talking about, uh, the children of God, they are the fathers, but they're also the sons. What is the fathers is also the sons. And then even more uh, interesting in verse 10, all mine are yours and all yours are mine. It's like there's hard, it's hard to tell where he, one begins and the other ends. They're this one, there's two persons, but there's this oneness to them. It's hard to break the two. And... I think Jesus taught this to, to the Apostle Paul. And so one of my favorite lines in all of Paul's writing is Galatians 2.20, where he says, I am crucified with Christ. It's no longer really I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I'm living by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So it's that union where your little tiny life, which is your constant conversation with yourself, always going on, happening right now, you're always talking to yourself, that little tiny life is, is being invited into this huge life 
of the Father and the Son. Bring your little tiny swirling thoughts into the great conversation that's been going on forever. The conversation between the Father and the Son. I remember when I first became a Christian, um, I told somebody, one of the ways I knew something had changed is, uh, used to I had dreaded being alone. That was my great fear, is to be alone and to be left out of a group. I did not want to be left, I did not want to be by myself. So if I was ever by myself, I was playing video games or doing something, reading, uh, watching something. But then, having become a believer, what I wanted to do more than anything was be alone at times. And so you go from loneliness to solitude. And the difference there is, is the breaking in of this conversation. Where you actually <clears throat> love being with God. With this God um, that um, I think it's appropriate to call y'all. So you can, you can refer to God as y'all. And uh, Margie actually was praying, my wife, the other day. We were praying out loud and she said... Um, Thank y'all. She didn't, she didn't admit that she said it, but she really did. Thank y'all for answering our prayer. And I was close to interrupting her. Never a good idea in prayer. But um, as I thought about that, I thought it didn't sound quite right. Thank y'all for, um, for helping. But as I thought about that more, I thought to really pray to God rightly, you've got to be a Southerner. And you have to have the word y'all in your toolkit somewhere. Because it is a y'all. It's not... <clears throat> It's not this cosmic tyrant who's sitting on a throne by himself, desperately in need of attention like a movie star at the Oscars. When you think, when you think about God like that, it's very hard to pray to God because that's not who God is. Um, God is an ongoing love fest of constant praise to the other. You know, God is not selfish. Uh, God is not self-centered. And so in verse 1, uh, the, glorify your son, that the Son may glorify you. Constant, like, back and forth praise. The Father's so great. The Son is so amazing. Spirit's like, they're both incredible. The two of them are like, the Spirit's fantastic. Verse 4, I glorified you on earth. Verse 5, glorify me in your presence. I mean, when you think of God like that, then you can start to talk to Him because the parental alienation begins to dissolve away like mist. And you enter into this mutually glorifying, other-promoting uh, eternal dynamic of joy. You know, the very first <clears throat> question in the, uh, the shorter catechism is, um, what is the chief end of, of humans? What is the main reason we exist? To glorify God and enjoy God forever. Now, when I used to think, well, if you glorify God, that means he's selfish because he wants everybody to be talking about himself. And in a way that's true, but also if you think about what God is like in, internally, it's not selfish at all. He's wanting you to join in this party of constant mutual glorification of other people and of God. And so the, the real name of God, when, when Jesus keeps praying about the name, the, the name of God is that God is love. God is love. God is, if God is love, he cannot be alone. This is a great insight of the, the early theologian St. Augustine. He said, uh, God cannot be one, like Allah, you know, God, God cannot be one if God is love. Because if, if God is love eternally, then who is God loving if God's by himself? God has to be more than one. God is love. And God did not create the world because he was lonely or needed people to talk about him. He doesn't need you at all. Uh, but he wants you to join in what he's made, which is this great dance. And I'll end with this quote by C.S. Lewis. God is not a static thing, but a dynamic pulsating activity, a dance. The whole dance of this three-personal life 
is to be played out in each one of us as we take our place in that dance. There is no other way to the happiness for which we were made. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get into the thing that has them. They are a great fountain of energy and beauty, spurting up at the very center of reality. Once a man is united to God, how could he not live forever? Once separated from God, what can he do but wither and die? So this is the thing we're being invited into. And when when Jesus says, Father, the hour has come, um, that hour, he's been talking about that hour, the entire gospel, the hour, the hour, the hour. It's the weekend that he had planned. He and his father had planned this weekend, greatest weekend in the world, where uh, he was going to come and experience the silence. He was going to experience all the parental alienation. He was going to take all of our experience of God's absence and our loneliness and bring that into himself. That's what the hour was. And in doing that, he was going to give us all of his life. He's going to bring us into the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's what we celebrate. That uh, on the night he was betrayed, the hour really began. Um, And he said, this is my body broken for you.